Welcome to On Mic with Jordan Rich, a celebration of artists and performers of all kinds. And I am excited to tell you that this is our 50th podcast, number 50. So thanks for being with us as we grow this podcast and have great fun doing so. Today, my guest is Poetry Slam performer Taylor Molly, one of the best poets in the country, if you ask me. He's been on seven national Poetry Slam teams, six appeared in the final stage, and four won the competition. Molly's the author of What Learning Leaves and The Last Time As We Are. He's recorded many CDs and has toured the nation. He appeared in Taylor, Molly, and Friends live at the Bowery Poetry Club and the documentary Slam Nation and Slam Planet. We're going to talk not only about poetry, but his work as a voiceover artist, which all goes hand in hand. And now, my conversation with Taylor Molly. So here we are, sitting down with the poet himself, Taylor Molly. It's delightful to chat with you here on this podcast after seeing you in action more than once. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. It's uh, I, when I found out that there was a podcast run by a voiceover guy, I knew that I, I had to do it. <laughs> well, you are somebody who uses your voice and that amazing brain of yours, and you're uh, so adept at poetry. Where did the poetry start for you in life? Is this something that I, was early I on? I say my, my dad used to write what we call occasional poems, poems written for specific occasions, Weddings and birthdays. He wrote a poem for his his parents' fiftieth wedding anniversary. He wrote a poem for my mother's fiftieth birthday, which I remember because it has a very complicated rhyme scheme. Sort of, he he would re- write these sort of Dr. Seuss meets Robert Frost. They always rhymed. They could be called doggerel, uh, but they were they weren't afraid to be sentimental. And uh, I remember the. The, uh, the poem he wrote for my mom began, since the earth was purged and mankind emerged with the other animals from Noah's Ark, most people have paused as this milestone passed the half a century mark. Oh, I, I actually even found a poem of his in a, in a collection of his poems. He used to write his poems longhand uh, on yellow legal pads. He never memorized them when he got up to recite, and I think if he'd lived a little longer, I would have been able to convince him of the benefits of memorization, because suddenly you get your eyes, uh, mm. your eyes and your hands are free to make greater connections with the audience. Uh, but I think, like many people, he just thought, "Oh, what what happens if I forget a line? I'll just I'll just you know be floundering up there." His poems were essentially uh, what. To- say they were rhyming toasts they were rhyming toasts but the first poem i that mentions me was written three months before i was born uh and it mentions my mother being pregnant with me Uh, the first the first couplet was 64 i was born in march of 1965 and this poem was called new year's eve 1964 and it goes, 64 was a year of change and a year of great enjoyment from the shift in Janie's silhouette to the shift in my employment. I guess he got a new job. <laughs> and then the last couplet is, um, and in 65, there will be more of us, one more tiny Molly torso, and we will all love each other, only just a little more so. I'm swept away by this. I love it. And you mentioned something about him, and I think this applies to you, the sense that these poems are are clever but approachable. 
Uh, for a lot of people, poetry is like opera. It gets a little bit heady, and we get a little bit embarrassed that we're not really following the action. But right. it's very communicative and very direct, his his work as well, is yours. And also, I grew up watching him recite these poems at weddings and birthdays and public events. And so for me, poetry was very much a, a, a public uh, art form. And it's funny what you should what you say about and I so I bring my talents as a you know, I was a uh, at Bowdoin College I was not an drama major because they did not have a drama major I probably would have been uh, if if they had had one as as they do now I understand and I would forever have been plagued by one of two different criticisms one uh, if you're really serious about your education why did you go to Bowdoin College and major in drama <laughs> and then other people who would say if you're really serious about a life in the theater why did you go to Bowdoin College where they don't even have a drama major so I was an English major there where all of the theater classes were were under the tent of the of the uh, English department. Hmm. So I graduated with, I think, more English credits than any other English major in the history of Bowdoin <laughs> College, but I don't know that for sure. But I bring my talents as an as a, as a actor who never was, and my all of my knowledge of the voiceover industry and and breathing techniques. I bring that to bear in my poems. And I was a, I, I competed in poetry slams, you know, competitive right, right. poetry reading judged by five randomly selected racist, homophobic idiots who are given <laughs> scorecards and are told you get to decide what, who wins, who is the best uh, poet. And I was teaching a workshop, not in spoken word or poetry slam, and I was talking about, and I always start my workshops by playing a poem at least the audio of it, if not, and sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm broadcasting the audio from my phone to a Bluetooth speaker, and I'm watching the poem on my little, on my phone, you know, but, and everybody else in the class is listening, listening to the poem. And I have an elderly woman in my class say, but, you know, you've got the voice and you've got the acting background. How much of a thespian does a poet really need to be? which is a great question. And I said, not as much as you might think, not as much as you might think I would say, knowing me. But these days, a poet needs to be just as much a thespian as to not confirm the audience's suspicions that they still hate poetry. You know, as I watched you in action not too long ago at a wonderful benefit, I kept thinking, uh, and I'm a history buff, I kept thinking of the, the early days of performance art in the New World when the great writers, uh, the Oscar Wildes and, and others, would, would do what you sort of do. They'd just get up and speak or orate. And it's sort of, I don't want to call it a lost art, but it's nice to see it coming back in the way you do it. It brings it to life again. Thank you. It, 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 it made me, uh, your, where I thought you were going with that was, you know, the, the stereotypical image of a politician is a big fat man wearing spats and, yeah. uh, and a top hat <laughs> right. and, and he's got a big belly. And the reason, I think we get that because in the days before amplification, in order to address a crowd, you really had to have a big voice. 
And public speaking was was really all about just being as loud as as you possibly can, and yet still sounding somewhat natural. I went to a the tour of of the Liberty Bell or Independence Hall, and uh, the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, but the your your average everyday ordinary uh, colonist didn't get to hear the declaration until I think uh, at least two days later, July 6th. And there was a gathering outside of Independence Hall, which I know wasn't called that back then, uh, in Philadelphia, where the Declaration of Independence was read out loud for the first time. And I raised my hand and asked the tour guide, who read it? Who was the guy, because I'm mm. sure it was a guy, <laughs> Who was the guy they tapped to say, you're going to be reading this declaration? And she said, thank you for asking. No one has ever asked me that question, but I do know the answer. It was the sheriff of Philadelphia, John Nixon. First of all, thank you for sharing something that I've always pondered, or I would have asked that question most likely, being a voiceover guy through and through. But it's called a declaration, so somebody had to declare it, and uh, somebody did. Right. <laughs> That's and really nowadays, even uh, um, some some high schools have public. They've renamed their public speaking contests uh, declaration contests. So mm. whether you choose a poem or the Gettysburg Address or uh, an ancient Greek uh, piece of oratory, you are getting up there and you are you are declaring it. On my, on, skill set. on my radio show on WBZ Boston for, for years, I did a recording of the declaration. I would run it July 3rd into the 4th. First of all, it would give me a chance to uh, take a nap, <laughs> but actually it became a, a very popular thing and it was an honor to do it. Let me ask you a little bit more about the writing and the crafting of the poetry from your perspective, Taylor. Okay. Because there have been treatises galore written about why poetry works and how it affects the brain and how it affects the mind. But when you're sitting down to, to write a poem, to create something, to create a message, are you thinking structure first? Are you thinking theme? And then the structure will take care of itself. I don't, I don't know if there's a, there's a pattern to the way you develop these very clever poems. I, I rarely think structure first, unless I, I already know that there's a particular form, like a sonnet or a pantoum or a villanelle. Those are all very fixed forms of poetry, uh, which are fun to write. Robert Frost said, uh, the genie gets its power from the bottle. So sometimes the, the limitations that you put on yourself will, will necessitate that you express yourself in a uh, dynamic way that perhaps would not have occurred to you if you had we're not living by any rules. Uh, so it's it's rarely the structure. I what what drives me to the paper is is the theme or a little bit of uh, if I if I catch myself saying a, a phrase that and I find um, that the phrase has a, a a little bit of music to it. I'm like oh you know what that's a good that's a good line. Whether it's a first line or a last line, I don't know, but. Let me uh, let me get a cup of coffee and let me let me pull out my journal. I have a moleskin journal and I mm. and I have a tiny handwriting. I write in cursive, and I can get a you know 200 words on a tiny tiny page. And so I love writing in my journal when I'm out in public. Um, but more often than not, I'm sitting in front of a computer 
which is just so great because you can sort of experiment with line breaks. Whereas 30 years ago, my, some of my teachers said, you know, if we wanted to see what a poem looked like with a different line break, we either had to retype the poem or we had to cut it up into little pieces and glue it onto another piece of paper. So <laughs> it's, uh, the computer and the word processor yes. is a wonderful uh, advancement for the, mm. for the poet's mm. art. So what, what sends me to the paper is the, is the content. And then uh, usually in the process of delineating the poem, figuring out where the lines are going to break, uh, a, a form will, will – usually I do the first stanza. I'll take the first couple of sentences, uh, I'll go to where there is a natural break, where I would want there to be a little bit of white space, because the mood changes, or I suddenly start approaching the subject from a different angle, and I know that that's going to be a stanza. And if that happens to be four lines, then then I'm really going to be, then the poem seems to have suggested quatrains. And I'm going to really look hard to see whether I can make the rest of the stanza uh, be in in four line four line stanzas. Now that doesn't mean that I can't uh, break make a break between stanzas that are still part of the same sentence, but I need to be doing so um, intentionally. Right. Right. Uh, but but then again, to to tie yourself. Sometimes you write the first stanza and it's perfect and it's in, in, it's in four lines. Um, it's not a quatrain unless the rest of the poem has stanzas in four lines. It could just be a four-line stanza. Mm -hmm. So having written one four-line stanza, I am 90% I am going to be writing four-line stanzas for the rest of the poem. Mm. Uh, but... but if I get halfway through that and I say, you know what, this form is not, this needs to be more free verse, uh, then I may, I may go back and delineate the whole thing. For, like what form the poem is going to be in is a secondary or a tertiary concern of mine. I really just want to say something uh, wise and memorable. Well, you do. And let me go back to your referencing Bowdoin and the English courses that you took, uh, endless English courses, it seems, right. because you've become uh, a well-recognized, well-respected, and beloved teacher. And in fact, you even did a one-man show called Teacher about poetry, teaching, and more, uh, winning prizes and, and acclaim. Teaching has—the way you teach, and I've only watched you on camera, on video— and, and read about you seems to be very much in the vein of uh, the performance artist, say Robin Williams portrayed the teacher in Dead Poets Society, inspiring people with words and voice. Uh, and I've often contended that to be a good teacher, you have to be a good performer. Do you agree? No, long, I do not any longer agree 100% with that. Although uh, to be a good teacher in the style that I am and in the style that you no doubt are when you uh, go into the classroom, that, that is one way to be a teacher. One way to be a teacher requires that you are also a performer. But I now recognize that that's not the only way. Okay. I have a line in one of my poems where I say, um, and maybe I, maybe I could read this poem to you. Uh, 
I have a line that I say, there are teachers who dazzle from the front of the classroom and others who coach quietly from the back. The first kind tend to get most of the attention, but the second kind do just as good a job. So, you know, th th that, that Robin Williams, uh, it's sort of an old school way of teaching. Uh, I am, you know, all eyes on me, I'm going to impart the knowledge to you. But I recognize now that there are other kinds of teaching that are just as effective and do not require uh, all of the all of the eyes to be on you. There are there are teachers who are more like your your coach or your manager, you know, and they just pushing you forward as opposed to me. I'm more the uh, George Washington. I'm on the front of the boat. Right. <laughs> yes. uh, follow me to knowledge, you know, okay. and uh, and the, but there are other. And I but I put that in there because I know that there are a lot of teachers who look at me and say, God, what an extrovert. Um, th there are great teachers who are who are not good actors. And I just I, I need to recognize that. I, I believe so, that's yeah. a very reasoned and, and as somebody who's been an experienced teacher, I think you know f fully well how it works these days. Thank you. Uh, before we move on, and I have a, a more serious question about the impact, emotional impact of poetry. You promised me a couple of poems. One is a poem about what I do and what this podcast is partly about, and that's voiceover. I'm intrigued. I have not heard this yet. I was teaching, and the father of a former student was on the creative team for the advertising agency that handled Burger King. And Burger King likes to change their voice every year or so, if not their entire tagline and campaign. And I was teaching in New York City, and they changed the you know, in, nobody nobody does, at least in New York, you don't have a demo tape anymore or even a demo disc. Uh, it is so easy for a, for a casting director to make uh, four phone calls and have a hundred white guys between the ages of 35 and 50 show up 15 minutes apart the next day. Yeah. Right? Yeah, right. That's how it works. Yeah. And in, in the voiceover industry, at least in New York, all of the casting offices are down in uh, like Flatiron or Gramercy Park or down or down in Soho. And I would walk into an audition into the lobby of a building where there was a casting office on the eighth floor. And I could look around the, the lobby and see the other white guys my age. <laughs> And know that that they were all going in there. Right, Ele I know the feeling. Elevator believe me. gets there. You walk in. You get into the elevator, and um, and you want to go to the eighth floor, but you, you you're not close enough to where the buttons are, and uh, and you hear one guy from the back say in a beautiful voice, "Could somebody please press eight? And then there's a guy who's standing next to the buttons, and he says it, with an even more beautiful voice. Don't worry, I got you. I've already pressed eight. You know, so the, the audition is starting in the uh, in the elevator. I love it in the elevator, right? So I got the job of being uh, the Burger King voice, and for ten months I made my living uh, partly as a teacher and partly going to a studio and saying some version of this line: "When you have it your way, it just tastes better." Burger King, offer go. available for a limited time only. Price and participation may vary. And so in my in my job as doing all, all these voiceovers, um, 
I got to say some ridiculous things. And when I was, uh, when, and, and there's an epigraph, there's a dedication for this poem uh, that, uh, that comes from when I was in the recording booth recording uh, the Burger King commercial. Here it is. It's called Voice of America voiceover. Dedicated to the guy who told me that I might as well face it. More people would hear my voice on this one single Burger King commercial than would ever hear me recite a single word of my own poetry. Thank you for the encouragement. In a world, in a world where 90% of all the commercial voiceover work goes to white men between the ages of 25 and 40, came a man, a white man, between the ages of 25 and 40, with nothing but a message as clear and distinct as his naturally trustworthy, unaccented voice. Herpes, 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 herpes. It's easy to say five times fast, but it's hard to say even once to the people who need to hear it most, your children. They want you... They want to grow up to be just like you, so make sure they learn to appreciate the beauty of all-wheel drive, because kids who try marijuana before the age of 15 are seven times more likely to recommend Trident to their patients who own guns. Did somebody say, Burger King, when you have it your way, it just tastes like nationwide long distance, now with more moisturizer and an extra drop of Retson for that deep down-bodied thirst. Remember, they're rubber and you're glue. Everything you say can and will be used against you on an episode of Law and Order, Special Fashion Victims Unit. So pay less with Boom, Tough Actin, Tanactin, and Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. Corporations use advertisements to manipulate and abuse you. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but some words are designed to confuse you. Why do I get the big bucks as a voiceover artist? Because I can say things like this. Here to discuss the issues facing small businesses and corporations with an eye towards implementing an overseas marketing stra strategy, be it via the internet, or more traditional B2B scenarios, is Bruce Chase, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Foreign and Domestic Commercial Operations with the U.S. Department of Commerce, without ever messing up once or even cracking a smile. So I ask you, do you, Yahoo, do you know where your children are? Do you remember when we used to dance? And incidents arose from circumstance. One look at the new Chevy S10 Blazer and you'll be asking yourself, is Viagra right for me? Look, I'm 37 years old. I'm actually 53, but this is a, obviously a 16-year-old poem. Look, I'm 37 years old and I'm in better shape now, thanks to Soloflex, than I was when I was in theaters everywhere. White men, they're everywhere you want to be. And Raid takes the poison back to their nest and kills them where they live. Look, I'm not a poet, but I play one on Russell Simmons Presents Deaf Poetry Jam. <laughs> I'm not a dead white male yet, but two out of three ain't bad. So on those days when you're not feeling quite so free, Fresh, come to Jamaica. Because on the road of life, there are passengers and there are poets like me. Can you hear me now? Don't let the words confuse you. Don't let the lies fill you. Because sticks and stones can break your bones, but my words are going to fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I want First of all, I, brilliant. Your references. I got every reference. Tells you how old well, I am. I realize this is a like a, a who's who of 90s uh, advertising. Oh, slogan. 
But I want to I want to plug the fact that folks, if you haven't seen this gentleman in 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 presentation live at an event, and he performs all over the place, uh, that you're just getting a little taste on on this podcast as to what you're in for. Very entertaining and and brilliantly crafted. Thank you. I I, I want to do one thing here before I have you conclude with a masterpiece poem that will make people fall out of their chairs laughing. Okay. And uh, and I, I I'm going to suggest that I can bring this up because you wrote about this on your blog, and okay. that is the the sad, unfortunate uh, passing of of Rebecca, your first wife. Right. And the reason I bring it up, uh, I think it's appropriate to, when you hear the question. But I also am a member of that uh, very uncomfortable club. I my first wife also passed away um, since remarried, as you are. The reason I bring this up, poetry, along with everything else, it does for so many, including yours truly, has been a source of healing and strength and calm and and resolution and so forth. I point to my favorite book in the world that I give as gifts, To Bless the Space Between Us, a book of blessings by John O'Donohue, the late priest from Ireland. And they're basically blessings that are really poems. And I wanted to ask you about the impact of poetry uh, when it really matters, when we're down and we're feeling low, and why poetry can do and how poetry does what it does. Well, that's not where I thought you were going with that, but it's uh, sometimes people say, God, how can you write about such such uh, painful topics? And from you know, from poetry is how I engage with the world. so it's it is part of my it is part of my healing mm-hmm. um, healing process. And uh, you know, it poem poetry speaks a, a language of feeling that is uh, both, arises from words and is also somehow transcends it. Mm-hmm. Um, it can, T.S. Eliot said, you can, uh, you can, uh, um, you, I'm not getting the words right, but you can appreciate a poem even, poetry communicates before it is understood. Yeah. Uh, so there are lines that, w- that are just, you don't really know why they are so comforting to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are, and you go, you they go back. You go back to them, and sometimes you, um, sometimes you, you, uh, you go back to them years later, and you and you they mean something different to you the the the, the next time you uh, you wrestle you wrestle with those words. I've Did- got I've got poems that I that I come back to that I don't completely understand, but. Um, but the music of them is so, so beautiful. Well, the reason I brought up your, your late wife and the tragic loss that occurred is because I, I don't know, because uh, I haven't researched it enough, if you turn to poetry as one way to, to not alleviate anything but to, to get through it all. Was that, a, was that a, for you a professional absolutely, poet? Absolutely, absolutely. But, I mean, I, I was already a poet. It was mm-hmm. already how I engaged with the world. And um, so, yeah, she she – she became for ten years. God, almost every poem I wrote was about was about the loss, uh, about that loss, and the, and 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 also, you know, um, my guilt and how I had loved her insufficiently, and if I had been a better partner, she would still be alive, and mm. uh, I, and you know, I would sometimes poetry was part of the healing process, but sometimes I would. I would write to sharpen, uh, to further sharpen scalpels. I would then turn upon myself, and uh, I put out a book uh, last last year. Finally, I was able to sort of 
put all of the poems about Rebecca into a slim volume called uh, the wedding the wedding stone. If you say it fast, it sounds it sounds like wedding with a D. It's W H. The wedding stone, a stone for sharpening knives. She was a she was a chef among other things, and I used to sharpen her knives for her every single day. And so when she went to the restaurant, you know, when the, when the head chef needed to cut something, he always went to her station and used used her knives. I can't remember how I started. Oh, so I, I got to put out the wedding stone last uh, mm-hmm. October. And uh, and it was it was great to finally sort of close close that chapter of my life. But I'm still I'm always going to be writing poems about. Right. Well, about thank, thank you for addressing that. Uh, before we close out with the poem that absolutely slayed the audience, and it it's very clever, and it's it's a little on the risque side for some. In fact, as a setup to this concluding poem, you told me that the impotence of proofreading, which you'll explain in a moment and then read, has caused uh, upset in the lives of teachers. Certain teachers have actually lost their gigs because they had the nerve and the temerity to, to present it in class. Four, four middle school teachers have been fired over this poem in the last 20 years because it's not appropriate to give to a middle school <laughs> class. It's funny. You'll see it. It hinges on it's a poem about over relying on spell check as uh, instead of a comprehensive proof, actual proofreading. And uh, yeah, this poem has taken out. Uh, for four teachers over well, the years. Well, uh, my audience for this podcast, uh, any age, is able to handle it. I promise you that. <laughs> and uh, it, as they say, it, it, we could talk for days with you about your craft, but I'd love for you to illustrate the essence of what you do with this poem. It's called The Impotence of Proofreading. And, no, no, no. It is called The, the Impotence of Proofreading. I know what— there are two thes in the in the road. The in the impotence. Oh, I'm so. Oh, thank you. I thought it was the way I was pronouncing the word T H E. No, no, no. The 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 the, the, the impotence. That changes everything for me. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so well, take thank it you away. For having me on, and uh, and here is that poem that you request. Has this ever happened to you? You work very very hard on a paper for English clash and still get a very glow rate on it, like a D or even a D equals, and all because you are the liverwurst spoiler in the whale wide word. Yes, proofreading your peppers is a matter of the, the utmost impotence. Now this is a problem that affects manly, manly students all over the word. I myself was such a bad spiller once upon a term that my English torturer in my sophomoric year, Mrs. Myth, she said that I was never going to get into a good colleague. And that's all I wanted. That's all any kid wants at that age, just to get into a good colleague. And not just anal community colleague, because I am not one of those guys who would be happy at just anal community colleague. I need to be challenged challenged menstrually. I need a place that can offer me intellectual simulation. So I know this probably makes me sound like a stereo, but I really felt that I could get into an ivory legal colleague. So if I did not improvement, then gone would be my dream of going to Harvard, jail, or prison you know, in prison, New Jersey. So I got myself a spell checker and I figured I was on Sleazy Street, but there are several missed 
aches that a spell checker can't, can't, catch, catch, for instant, if you accidentally leave out word, your spell checker won't put it in you. And God, for billing purposes only, you should have serial problems with Tory spelling. Your spell check off may end up using a word that you had absolutely no detention of using. Because, I mean, what do you want it to douche? No, it only does what you tell it to douche. You're the one who's sitting in front of the computer screen with your hand on the mouth going clit, clit, clit. It just goes to show you how embargo one careless little clit of the mouth can be, which reminds me of this one time during my junior mint, the teacher took the essay that I had written on a sale of two titties, and she read it out loud in front of all of my ass mates. It was quite possibly one of the most humidifying experiences of my entire life, being laughed at like that pubically. So do yourself a flavor and follow these two Pisces of advice. One, there is no prostitute for careful editing of your own work. No prostitute whatsoever. And three, when it comes to proofreading, the red penis, your friend. Spank you. <laughs> Spank you very much. Uh, somewhere, E.E. E. Cummings, Theodore Geisel, all the, all the greats in heaven are applauding and, and nodding in agreement. I think that's brilliant, and I know you've performed it, and I think performing it is even more fun uh, when we, well, we get to hear you, you here. say that. If you just let me say this one thing, I once went out to dinner with a couple of teachers afterwards, after a reading, and somebody wanted to brought that poem up, and one said, you know, um, I... I was not familiar with that poem uh, before I heard you recite it tonight. And I feel as though I am lucky that I got to hear it before I ever read it. And somebody else at the table said, no, I disagree. Mm. I first read that poem and I feel like I am the l lucky one. So I was that was I just sat there <laughs> quietly and drank my beer and let them argue it. Well, I want to address the fact that uh, my guest, Taylor Molly, has a website that is easily accessible. It's Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, Molly, M-A-L-I, TaylorMolly.com for information about his various speaking engagements, his voiceover, his teaching and the poetry and the books and all the activity. And uh, it sounds like you're having a blast these days doing what you love to do and uh, the creative juices are flowing. Thank you so much for spending a little time and, and entertaining me and many, many of our listeners today. It's been a lot of fun. My pleasure, Jordan. You've been listening to On Mike with me, Jordan Rich, a podcast produced and hosted by Chart Productions on the web at chartproductions.com. This podcast available on Apple, Google+, Stitcher, and all other download platforms. I invite you to rate, review, download, and subscribe to this podcast. And as always, I want to thank you for listening and wish you the very best day. Peace.